Hello there, Mamie's here to read you a little history book. This is called The Statue of Liberty. It is a step into reading, step one, preschool through grade one book by Lucille Recht Penner, illustrated by Jada Rowland. And I feel like I've read this before, but I think it was on my YouTube channel. If you didn't know, Mimi has a YouTube channel also. So you can find that if you, if you like. I know some of your parents like you to do audios and not videos. And that's why I like this. This is really fun for me to do and hopefully helps you. So anyway, the Statue of Liberty is a little paperback book about a very important statue. And it was written in 1995 and published by Random House, New York. A lady stands in New York Harbor. She is as tall as a skyscraper. She's called the Statue of Liberty. Liberty means freedom. All over the world, people dreamed of coming to America to find freedom. People came by ship. The trip took many days. Men, women, and children were crowded together. They were tired, hungry, and scared. Suddenly, they saw the lady. They had reached America at last. Now they knew they were free. People cried for joy. The Statue of Liberty was a present from the people of France to the people of the United States. A Frenchman made the lady. His name was Frederick Bartholdi. He copied his mother's face for the statue. How beautiful she was. First, Frederick made a small statue, then a bigger one, then an even bigger one. The last statue was so big, it could not fit in his workshop. This picture shows him next to the big toe, and the big toe is probably almost as big as his body and wider and fatter. He had to make it in pieces. He made the right hand holding the torch. Then he made the head. Each finger was longer than a man. Each eye was as big as a child. Frederick needed lots of help. His helpers worked in a big room. They took the many they took the pieces outside and put them together. She was higher than all the buildings, much higher. Workers took the statue apart. They packed it in 214 crates. A ship carried it from France to New York. In America, the people were building a high pedestal for the lady to stand on. But they ran out of money. The work stopped. No one knew what to do. Joseph Pulitzer owned a newspaper. He had an idea. Joseph said, The statue needs a home. I will print the name of everyone who gives money to help. Thousands of people sent nickels and dimes. Children sent pennies. Soon there was enough money. Now workers could finish the huge pedestal. They set the lady on top of it. A big French flag was draped over her face. This picture shows a man sticking his head out of the top of her crown. And Mimi was in that crown when I was maybe 17. Now I don't think they let people go up there anymore. On October 28, 1886, the people of New York had a parade to welcome her. The President of the United States made a speech. Frederick Bartholdi was excited. He raced up a staircase inside the statue. Up and up and up he went to the very top. Frederick looked down. A boy was waving a white handkerchief. It was the signal. Frederick pulled a rope and the flag fell. 
There was the lady. Hip, hip, hurrah. Cannons boomed. Boat whistles blew. People cheered. The excitement never ended. Today, more than a 100 years later, the Statue of Liberty still welcomes people to America, the land of the free. Here's another history book for you today. This one is a first start biography called Young Clara Barton, Battlefield Nurse. It's published by Scholastic. Um, was our other one published by Scholastic? I don't know right now. Okay, this one was printed or copyrighted 1996, Scholastic Incorporated. It is written by Sarah Alcott, illustrated by Benry Huang. Sorry if I don't say that correctly. Clara Barton. Clara Barton was a brave woman. She carried supplies and medicine to injured soldiers during the Civil War. She also started the American Red Cross, a group that helps people in need. Sometimes you can hear me me turn the page even if I don't say ding. Clarissa Harlow Barton was born in Massachusetts on December 25, 1821. Everyone called her Clara. She was the baby of the family. Clara had two sisters and two brothers. Does anybody like that in your house? Youngest of five? Clara loved to hear her father tell stories. He had lots of adventures as a soldier on the frontier. Soon it was time for Clara to start school. There was only one school in town with only one room. She was a good student. Clara's favorite subject was geography. She loved to look at maps. That's fun, isn't it? Clara was shy. It was hard for her to make friends. But she wasn't shy when people needed help. When she was 11 years old, her brother fell off the barn roof and was badly hurt. Clara was his nurse for the two years it took to get him well. Wow. When she was 17 years old, Claire decided to help other children learn, so she became a teacher. Some of Claire's students were almost her age, but she was a good teacher and all of her students loved her. She was a teacher for 18 years. Then in 1854, Claire moved to Washington, D.C. She became the first female clerk in the United States Patent Office. Well, Mimi's learning some things about Claire Barton. At that time, slavery existed in the southern states, but not in most northern states. Should slavery be allowed? No one could agree. The country was so divided over slavery that in 1861, the Civil War began between the North and the South. Young men everywhere volunteered to fight. There were terrible battles. Many soldiers were hurt or killed. Clara wanted to help. She remembered taking care of her brother years ago. She knew she would be good at caring for the wounded soldiers. Clara was good at reading maps. She memorized military maps so she could find soldiers who needed help. She wasn't afraid to go on the battlefield and she didn't care if the soldiers were fighting for the North or the South. She just wanted to help them get well. Clara brought the soldiers medicine and dressed their wounds. Her bravery and caring saved many lives. Taking care of soldiers cost a lot of money. Clara needed other people to help her. 
You might not know the end of the story, but Mimi does. I don't know all the details in the middle, but I know the end. Clara was still shy, but the need for raising money made her bold. She asked people everywhere to help. Money was needed to buy bandages, medicine, food, clothing, soap, towels, and other supplies for the wounded soldiers. People all over the country heard about Clara. They called her the Angel of the Battlefield because of her good work. Reminds me of James in the Bible, huh? Doing good works. Finally, in 1865, the Civil War was over, but Clara still had work to do. President Lincoln asked Clara if she could form a group that would search for missing soldiers. She was happy to help. Four years passed and Clara needed a rest. She decided to visit Switzerland. While Clara was in Europe, the Franco-Prussian War broke out. She helped the European soldiers just as she had helped the American soldiers. She didn't get a break, did she? She went over there for a rest and she started working. In Switzerland, Clara met the International Committee of the Red Cross. This group helped people in need. Clara thought America needed the Red Cross too. So in 1881, after she came back to the United States, she started the American Red Cross. Many people joined. Clara taught them everything she knew about helping others. Today, the American Red Cross is always ready to help where there, where there are hurricanes, excuse me, when there are hurricanes, floods, and other disasters. Clara Barton died in 1912. She will always be remembered as a brave and heroic woman in war and peace. That's interesting what Mimi thinks of when I think of the Red Cross. That was the end of the book, but what Mimi thinks of when I think of the Red Cross is um, blood donations, giving blood to help people. Um, I also think of Clara Barton. What I didn't know, the other thing I didn't know was I thought she just founded the Red Cross. I didn't realize the Red Cross was already in Europe, another part of the world. She founded the American Red Cross. So that was an interesting book to learn some facts. Of course, it might not be entirely true. You should always check your facts and know that only the Bible is completely true. All right. Thank you for joining me for this short little history book by Scholastic. Claire, young Clara Barton, Battlefield Nurse. And remember, it was written by Sarah Alcott, illustrated by Benry Wong. Thank you. Have a good day. Decided to read you one more history book on this episode. This one is by a favorite author of mine. I suppose she's deceased. I would have to look it up if she's alive or not. Her name is, or was, Jean Fritz. This book is by Jean Fritz, illustrated by Trina Schart-Hyman. It's a scholastic book, and this one is called Why Don't You Get a Horse, Sam Adams? Another history book for you. And let's see the year. Can Mimi find the year? This was published in 1974. First scholastic printing, 1988, but first published text copyrighted 1974. And that's been a while. That's when Mimi was five years old and Pop Pops was four years old. It's a long time ago, isn't it, kids? So the little introduction says, Why don't you get a horse, Sam Adams? In the early days of America, when men wore ruffles on their shirts, 
rode horseback, and swore allegiance to the King of England. There lived a man in Boston who cared for none of these things. Samuel Adams turned up his nose at ruffles, wouldn't get on a horse, and hated the King of England. No one expected him to change his mind about the king or about frilly clothes, but his friends did think that he might get on a horse. But would he? Never, he said. He liked to wander about Boston, visiting and talking, mostly against England, and he could do that better on two legs than from the top of four. Sam and his cousin John Adams spent years arguing about horses, but the outcomes of their debates came as a surprise to John. That was the introduction. Why don't you get a horse, Sam Adams? This is going to be a nice book. I'm not sure if Mimi has ever read it, or at least not in a long time. In the early days of America, let me see. This might be the same as I just read. Yeah, this is the same part I just read, but I'll repeat it because I'm not sure where it cuts in and out or stops. In the early days of America, when men wore ruffles on their shirts and buckles on their shoes, when they rode horseback and swore allegiance to the King of England, there lived a man in Boston who cared for none of these things. His name was Samuel Adams. His clothes were shabby and plain. He refused to get on a horse, and he hated the King of England. Samuel Adams was known as a talker and a walker. Six days of the week, he would walk about Boston, talking to anyone who would listen, talking about England, always about England. What he thought about was independence, but it was a long time before he dared say independence out loud. Americans were still loyal to the king, even though they were often angry at the way England treated its colonies, and Samuel Adams made it his business to keep the people angry. That's interesting. Usually we don't want people to stay angry, do we? Or we shouldn't in most cases. From one end of the town to another, Samuel walked. Indeed, how else was he to travel? A man cannot say much from the top of a horse except good morning, good evening, or giddy up. And Samuel Adams had a great deal more than that to say. Still, he did not travel alone. At his side was Q-E. I'm not sure how you pronounce that word. It's spelled Q-U-E-U-E. His shaggy Newfoundland, excuse me, Newfoundland dog. Let's see if Mimi can get her tongue together, huh? Together they went to the docks, and while Samuel Adams talked to merchants about the wrongs of the English government, Huey smelled the good smells of the Boston Harbor, drying codfish, wet rope, and sometimes, if he was lucky, a giant turtle in a crate shipped up from the south. New Englanders doted on turtle soup. You know what it means to dote on something? means you really, really like it. That's usually where it used, when I've seen that word, it's usually been used like a grandma doting on her grandchild or something like that. Together, Samuel and Cuey called on shopkeepers. Generally, Samuel went inside and talked about the wickedness of England. Generally, Cuey stayed outside and chased a stray chicken or stopped at a hitching post to visit with a horse. Together, Samuel and Cuey would drop in at a tavern. Samuel would sit down and talk about American rights. Cuey, blinking through the hair that fell over his eyes, would search the floor for crumbs, a morsel of cheese, a bite of plum cake, and sometimes, if he was lucky, a discarded bone. Samuel's younger cousin, John Adams, often became impatient with all his walking. Why don't you learn to ride a horse, he would ask. Or 
on page 12 and 13 if you're following. But Samuel would not learn. Winter and summer he walked and he talked. Indeed, he paid so little attention to his private business that he became quite poor. His house fell into disrepair. His clothes became shabbier. His shoe leather more thin. He was worried about what were, were called the colonies, right, kids? We weren't even called the United States back then. Meanwhile, England was imposing taxes on America. First, a stamp tax was on stamp tax on printed matter. No one could obtain a marriage license now, or a college diploma, or even buy a newspaper without paying England a share of the money. This made the people of Boston so angry they tore down the governor's house, set fire to the tax office, and elected Samuel Adams, a representative to the Massachusetts legislature. Being a member of the government, Samuel had a chance to talk to, pe to more people, but still he walked. Even when England withdrew the stamp acts, stamp tax, excuse me, Samuel talked and walked, warning the merchants and the shopkeepers and the people at the taverns not to trust England. It had taxed American once, he said. It would try it again. And indeed, a year later, it did. This time, Americans had to give England money when they, whenever they bought glass, paint, lead, or tea. This made the people so angry that the king decided to send soldiers to Boston to keep order. Mimi will make a note sometimes as I turn the page. And as I turn from page 15 to 16, I will say the author refer, refers to the people living there at the time as Americans and they weren't Americans yet they were mostly English citizens they were colonists and a colony is something that is like a small little baby country or a baby place to live of another country and that's what now as America was at the time we weren't America yet they arrived in Boston on October 1st 1768 two regiments of red of soldiers in red coats from the harbor they marched, 1,000 strong, their drums beating, fifes playing, flags flying, and bayonets fixed. They marched straight to Boston Common, a park in the center of town where people were accustomed to take walks, play games, and graze their cows. There the soldiers set up tents and settled down for the winter. It was a long winter. Every time he turned around, it seemed to Samuel Adams there was a red coat. He woke up hearing red coat drills. He went to bed hearing their bugles. Redcoats stopped him on his walks to ask his name and business. Samuel Adams longed for America to fight the Redcoats then and there, but he knew the country was not ready yet for war or independence. Page 18 continued. But Huey could fight. Under Samuel's careful training, Huey learned to hate Redcoats. He growled and snarled when they passed. He barked and snapped when they came near. And sometimes, if he was lucky, he came home with a piece of red cloth in his mouth. That's a little boy at the back of this picture. It's this illustration laughing just like Mimi laughed when I heard that. <laughs> Meanwhile, Samuel kept on talking and walking. Why can't you ride a horse like everyone else? His cousin John asked. But Samuel shook his head. This is a nice illustrator. Twice in the next few years, Americans, or colonists, remember, came close to fighting. Once a mob of young men swung clubs and threw rock-filled snowballs at the Redcoats until the Redcoats finally fired back. Samuel Adams did his fiercest talking against the Redcoats in this instance. 
Another time, a band of men dressed up like Indians dumped a boatload of tea into Boston Harbor rather than see the tea taxed. Samuel was the one who gave the signal to go down to the docks. That was called the Boston Tea Party. By the fall of 1774, Americans were so alarmed about England that they called a meeting in Philadelphia to discuss what to do. Samuel Adams was chosen to go as one of the representatives from Massachusetts. He had never been out of of Massachusetts before. You are now a traveler, his friends pointed out, and you should learn to ride a horse. But Samuel said that that would not be necessary. The representatives were going to Philadelphia in a coach. He stood before his friends, his coat frayed, his shoes scuffed, his cotton stockings darned. His friends said nothing about his appearance, but within a few days, gifts began arriving at his house. One maroon-colored broadcloth suit, six pairs of buckled shoes, six pairs of white silk stockings, two ruffled shirts, and one wig. <laughs> his so- This is my note to turn the page, my note, note time, Mimi's comment. Um, his stockings darned. That means his socks were mended. That's what we would say to, to that today. Instead of throwing his socks out, he fixed the holes or someone fixed the holes for him. Page 24. When Samuel Adams left for Philadelphia, he was dressed as a representative of Massachusetts should be dressed. He was as stylish as his cousin John Adams or his friend John Hancock or indeed any other of the representatives. And if others could ride a horse and he couldn't, he didn't care. Actually, it was lucky that Samuel could at least look nice because he couldn't say much at the meeting. Many of the representatives from other colonies still weren't ready to talk about independence, so Samuel had to be patient a while longer. There was a time, he knew, for throwing snowballs and a time for dumping tea, but there was also a time for smiling, for sitting still, excuse me, under your new wig and holding your tongue. This was such a time. That's a good lesson for us to learn when to hold our tongues. Mimi gives you your little lectures when I'm turning the page, huh? Page 26. But of course he couldn't be still forever. By 1775, Samuel was talking openly of independence. He was 53 years old now and at the top of the king's, quote, most wanted list of American traitors. John Hancock was on the list too. As for Cuey, unfortunately, he was dead. He had fought his last battle with the Redcoats before the real fighting began. On April 18th, the Redcoats marched out of Boston, looking for American cannon that was hidden in Concord and looking, so it was said, for Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who were hidden in a friend's house in Lexington. Samuel wasn't afraid of trouble. The more trouble there was with the Redcoats, the sooner Americans would be willing to declare Excuse me, I looked away from the book. Willing. Hold on. Okay, sorry about that. Willing to declare their independence and the better he'd like it. But of course, he preferred not to be caught. Fortunately for Samuel and John, the Americans had discovered what the English were up to. Ahead of the Redcoats rode Paul Revere. He galloped up to the house where Samuel Adams and John Hancock were staying. The Redcoats are coming, he cried. Page 28. Samuel jumped out of bed, ready to fly for his life. He was in such a hurry that he left his watch under his pillow. 
John also jumped out of bed, but he was more eager to fight than to fly. He grabbed his sword and began to polish it. Samuel told him to put his sword away. We aren't meant to be soldiers, he said. We are the brains behind the revolution. It is our duty to escape. Hmm, interesting, huh? Reluctantly, John put his sword away and made ready to escape. Now, of course, as everyone knows, the way to escape from an enemy is on the back of a horse. You lean forward with hooves underneath, hooves thundering behind and streak into the night. But Samuel Adams couldn't ride a horse. In the end, there was nothing for John Hancock to do but call for his carriage and his driver. The two men took their seats and rolled sedately away to a neighboring town. Eventually, they found a swamp to hide in. It was not a heroic escape, but it was an escape. The only thing Samuel Adams regretted, that he'd left his watch behind. <laughs> now, that's quite funny. Because if you think, you, if you remember what a carriage is, it's the, like, little cart or wheeled, wheeled um, vehicle that's pulled behind the horses. Can the horses go really fast when they're pulling a vehicle? No. So that's why they said about it being rolled sedately sedately is really slowly so and the only thing he regretted was that he'd left his watch behind he sounds like a funny guy even now he would not ride a horse in september on the way to another meeting in philadelphia john adams tried again to persuade him this time they were traveling alone john and samuel and their two servants john and his servant fessenden were on the horses samuel and his servant were in a two-wheeled chase under such circumstances, it was hard for John and Samuel to talk. John suggested that Samuel could ride Festin's horse and Festin could get in the chase. Samuel suggested that his servant could ride John's horse and John could get in the chase. But John loved to ride, so John trotted along to Philadelphia and Samuel rolled along, each with his own thoughts. It took a week or more to go from Boston to Philadelphia, but of course there were many stops at inns where John and Samuel could talk together. And there was so much to talk about. Since the Battle of Lexington, George Washington had been put in command of an American army, and there had been another battle at Bunker Hill. But there wasn't enough time to talk about all that had happened and was still to happen in the country. At a tavern in Grafton, Connecticut, John Adams decided to make one last attempt to get Samuel on a horse. Riding would be good for your health, he began. Samuel was not concerned with his health. Riding was sociable, John suggested. Suggested. Samuel said walking was sociable, and riding in a chase would, could be sociable, too. Well, riding was a more convenient way to get about, John went on. As leader of the revolution, Samuel was a busy man and needed to get about easily. Samuel was not interested in convenience. Riding was the fastest way to travel, John observed. In time of war, it was sometimes important to move fast. <clears throat> This page shows John Hancock's flintlock rifle, in parentheses, used, and John Adams' sword, in parentheses, never used in a battle. Remember Samuel to told John to put his sword away? On page 37, we continue. Still, Samuel was not convinced. If he thought about his escape at Lexington, he didn't mention it, John sighed and tried another tack. It was a pity, he said, that early man had gone to such trouble to domesticate an animal only to have Samuel Adams come along and reject it. Samuel didn't give two hoots for early man. Then John Adams sat back in his chair and took a deep breath. He had one more argument. You should ride a horse for the good of your country, he declared. America 
would surely be declaring his independence soon, he pointed out. If all went well, they themselves would be signing such a declaration in Philadelphia. Then they would not just, they would not, excuse me, they would be not just leaders of a revolution, they would be the statesmen of a new nation. John leaned toward his cousin. A proud new nation, he said. A great nation, a republic as Rome had been in ancient times, and whoever heard of a great nation was statesmen who could not ride horseback. John listed the heroes of Roman history. He reviewed the names of Roman senators. All were horsemen, he said, and he would not want Americans to be inferior in the least way. For the first time, Samuel looked thoughtful. After all, he told himself, he had put on silk stockings and a ruffled shirt, so as not to shame the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in the meeting in Philadelphia, how could he refuse to get on a horse if the honor of his country were at stake? How could he put a stain on American history indeed right on the opening chapter? Samuel closed his eyes and tried to imagine the new nation that John described. Yes, it seemed to him that he could see it. People multiplying, buildings springing up, roads unrolling, and stone statues popping up across the landscape. They were statues of the new nation's first statesmen, and they were all on horseback. There was John Adams in a stone on a stone horse, and John Hancock. There were dozens of George Washingtons on dozens of horses, but try as he might, Samuel could not find a statue of himself. If he did not ride a horse, he asked himself, would he even be granted a pedestal? Do you know what a pedestal is, kids? That's the thing that a statue stands on, or it can be used in another situation, but it's like the block the big stone block that a big stone statue would sit on. So he's saying, oh, I won't even get a statue if I don't ride a horse, huh? Page 40. We're getting close to being done. Oh, closer. This is a nice long book. When they were ready to continue the journey, Samuel walked over to Fessenden's horse. He eyed it suspiciously. She's a very gentle creature, John assured him. Samuel said nothing, but he allowed the two servants to boost him onto the horse. He listened to John's instructions He did as he was told. Then the servants rolled along to Philadelphia in the chase, and Samuel and John rode together. Everyone agreed that Samuel did remarkably well in the saddle. There was only one trouble. At the end of the day, it was discovered that at the place where Samuel Adams and the saddle met, Samuel was sore. And everyone agreed that this was no way for a future statesman to feel. So at Woodstock, Connecticut, where they spent the night, John bought two yards of flannel, found a tailor, and ordered a pair of padded underpants or drawers for Samuel. <laughs> he heard his he heard his bottom, huh? The next morning, John gave Samuel his final lesson in horsemanship. A statesman, he ex- explained, should not have to be hoisted and heaved into the saddle by two servants. He should be able to mount himself. He told Samuel to grasp the bridle with his right hand over the pummel of the saddle to place his left foot in the stirrup, to twist his left hand into the horse's mane, halfway between his ears and his shoulders, and propelling himself upward to throw his right leg over the saddle. Samuel did as he was told. So mounted in his padded drawers, Samuel rode triumphantly to Philadelphia, the very picture of a noble statesman. And when independence was finally declared, one hot July day, 10 months later, Samuel Adams was ready for history. Now that's the end of the book, but there's some notes here at the end I will read to you. This is called a postscript.
That means after writing or at the end of the book. Okay, the postscript from the author. For those readers who will ask if the facts in this book are true, the answer is yes. I was disappointed that there was no more information to be found about QE, but I'm grateful to John Adams for telling us in such detail about how Samuel Adams finally learned to ride a horse. On September 17, 1775, John wrote all about it, including the specific instructions for mounting a horse, given on page 42 in a letter to his friend James Warren. For those readers who would like to know more about Samuel Adams, here are some additional facts. Samuel Adams' anger at England started early in life. His father, a wealthy and prominent businessman, was at the center of a political movement that wanted to give more power to the American people and less to England. Samuel was 18 and a student at Harvard University when a new bank that his father and his friends had started suddenly failed. Samuel's father lost so much money that in order to pay his way through college, Samuel had to take a job waiting on, waiting on table. Samuel didn't mind the job. He never cared about having money for himself, but the bank had failed because England had declared it illegal and in a way that many people thought was unfair. This was what Samuel objected to. Then and there, he decided it was not right for a country across the ocean to have such so much power in the life of Americans. Or remember, as Mimi noted, the colonists, because they weren't Americans yet. There was no United States of America yet. Yet Samuel Adams did not look like an agitator. He was a rather short, portly, blue-eyed, mild-mannered, slow-moving, polite man with a nice singing voice. He went to church regularly and was strict about his own and everyone else's morals as long as this did not interfere with his political plans. In many ways, he was old-fashioned. Although he wanted America to be rid of England, he was not interested in establishing a country with new ideas. <clears throat> Excuse me. All he wanted was a free nation and one that would exhibit the virtues that he believed had existed among the first Puritan settlers. Samuel Adams had no part in the actual writing of the Declaration of Independence, but because he started so early to work for it, he has sometimes been called the father of independence. He continued in politics all his life, was elected lieutenant governor and then governor of Massachusetts in the 1790s, but his real contribution was in, in the early years before the war. He died in 1803 at the age of 81 in Boston, the city he had known and loved so well. Samuel devoted all his energy to politics. After college, he tried business life, but he was not interested and did not do well. He was married twice. His first wife died in 1757, had two children, and although his family seemed happy and devoted, they had to manage much of the time on very little money. Samuel became known as an agitator, a people rouser, or as the English called him, an incendiary, 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 one who starts fires. And indeed, he was behind most of the disturbances and demonstrations in Boston before the war, including the famous Tea Party. He used every means he could find, fair means, and often not so fair, to oppose England and to lead the people towards toward independence. Okay, that's the end of that. The author was Jean Fritz. She's a very interesting lady who might talk about more some other time. And the artist was Trina Shart Hyman. And that book was called why Don't You Get a Horse, Sam Adams? by Jean Fritz, illustrated by Trina Shart Hyman, published by Scholastic. And I think Mimi said, what year did we say? 1974, when Mimi was five years old. Thank you for joining me. That was a little bit longer, but quite a fun history book that I enjoyed reading to you.